the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, welcome back. As we head into hour two, I, um, I it was a little surreal this morning. I was I was watching CBS this morning, and and uh, they were interviewing Nicole Hannah Jones while I was working on Twitter. One of the CBS correspondents was writing uh, in real time as uh, Gail King was interviewing her that Nicole Hannah Jones was turning down. She's the the creator of the 1619 Project. She was turning down a grant, an offer of tenure at the University of North Carolina and taking a position at Howard University. You could hardly contain the Twitter feeds at CBS that they broke this story. And I was just gobsmacked that this had become such a big cause celeb. Peter Wood uh, has been with us before. He is, of course, the president of the National Association of Scholars, has a great piece in American Greatness on um, uh, on the Nicole Hannah Jones situation at UNC. A university capitulates to the woke mob. Of course, this was a moving target of a story. UNC had originally denied her tenure. Then they granted her tenure. Then she spurned them. Peter Wood, Dr. Wood, thanks for joining us. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. It's an exciting uh, story. It is in in, in the sense that um, I, I'll tell you what I took from it initially was when UNC Re, how do you what would you say retracted their denial of tenure is that the way to put this voted again and granted her tenure i thought my god what cowardness but this is what we were used to in the 60s wasn't it yeah it is um i mean technically they never denied her tenure okay. they just uh uh when she initially was put forward for appointment they asked for some more information and the school of journalism at unc declined to provide that information, so the board went ahead and offered her the appointment. Uh, she spun that as a denial of tenure and uh, was able to work up a uh, essentially a mob across the country of sympathetic academics and others who thought that this was a denial of tenure. Uh, so she created a uh, public spectacle out of this and intimidated the board, at least the majority of them, nine said yes and four held their ground and said no. Uh, and uh, thus they made the offer of tenure to her, which she and her uh, uh, amen corner of uh, fellow radicalized faculty members and students said they wanted. But of course, long before they had even voted, she had quietly decided that she was just going to humiliate them by showing that they were marionettes that she could pull their strings. And uh, so last week they decided, yes, you can have your tenure after all. And they issued a, uh, a big valedictory statement from the chairman of the board saying how brave they were in their support of academic freedom and so on. And uh, meanwhile, she had already accepted the position at uh, uh, Howard University and was just waiting to make her big splash on Tuesday morning when she could uh, essentially humiliate those board members whom she had manipulated. 
the kind of revenge act. They had humiliated her by denying her tenure. Now she was humiliating them by showing the world that they were cowards who would do whatever she made them do. There's a lot to this story. Part of it has to do with the Board of Trustees at UNC. Part of it has to do with academia generally, uh, Professor Wood. You, you're, you're a veteran of this. You're the head of the National Association of Scholars. You know academia. This is a, um, this is a, um, uh, a scholar. Let's, let's, let's call her what she calls herself. She, this is a scholar who has written research, has written uh, an entire project, 1619, of education about American history that has been condemned – by a lot of respectable historians, not all of them on the right. But moreover, Dr. Wood, have you ever seen such a to-do over someone who doesn't have their terminal degree and has been rightly and fairly accused of changing their published work without telling anyone about it, as she did with the 1619 Project? Most schools wouldn't give tenure to someone with a master's degree and a record of changing their work once it's been published without notification, would they? Well, most schools wouldn't do that, and they wouldn't have appointed her to any academic position, given the disgrace that she's brought on herself by, in effect, lying about um, the basic part of her story. Calling her a scholar is excessively generous. Okay. She's not really even a legitimate journalist, okay. and that she made stuff up and published it in a tone of authority. And then when uh, even the New York Times' own fact-checker said, well, we warned her that this was false, and she refused to make any changes. Uh, so we're, we're dealing with a fabulous somebody who makes stuff up and then belligerently sticks with it and attacks those who point out the facts as though uh, they are crossing some terrible line of uh, accusation against her. Well... You know, uh, this is not a person who would ordinarily rate any kind of position in academe, but these are unusual times in which uh, the plane or the race card goes a very long way towards excusing follies of all sorts. It seems to me over the years when I started first getting kind of hip to this, somewhere in the mid-80s, Dr. Wood, I seem to remember there were some... African-American or black intellectuals that weren't buying into it. Shelby Steele was one of them, of course, in those days. Uh, I'm trying to remember the guy who came to my campus. He was a jazz critic, died about a year or two ago. Stanley Crouch was yeah, was decrying Crouch. some of this as well. And I remember him making the point that a lot of this has nothing to do with his politics. It's just that a lot of these quote-unquote, scholars just aren't that good. And he took on some of the big names that were kind of famous at the time, the kind of people Oprah was making famous. And he just and he simply said, it's, it's just not good writing. It's just not good scholarship. And, but that notion, Peter, that seems to have disappeared anywhere anymore. What matters, it seems to me, is the grievance, not the accreditation or not your skill set. Isn't that kind of what's happened in higher, higher education these days? Well, broadly speaking, that's true. But there's still dozens of uh, black academics who have made it by means of high-quality scholarship. Of course. People like Glenn, Glenn Of Lowry, course. For John McWhorter, um, of course. So, uh, innumerable scholars, no question. 
No question. So, you know, what's happened, though, is that the, uh, the people running universities are running scared. They know that the woke mob will come for them if they uh, gainsay its demands. And I thought initially that the trustees of the University of North Carolina deserved great praise for standing up to this stuff, but then they took a look at their shadow and became uh, afraid, so they turned around. Um, We are in a situation in higher education in general where it is really, really difficult for the administrators to hold the line. Uh, Some of them want to hold the line but can't quite manage the gumption to do it. Others are are perfectly ready to jump right in. uh, uh, We see people like um, the uh, author of uh, the anti-racism tract of the hour. Oh, uh, Ibram Kendi, yeah. Mm -hmm. Ibram Kendi, uh, appointed for no reason whatsoever to an endowed chair and then showered with millions of dollars of research funds for for what? I mean, for a... a, uh, a rather shallow and ignorant diatribe in which he claims to have written the definitive history of racism in America. Um, so, have you ever heard him yeah. speak, by the way? He's just not that good. No, he, he's not that good. And his, his I, I've heard lefties who were good speak. He's just not one of them. <laughs> right. Well, he has a, a, a line, and he talks his line, but... He can't bear to be challenged about anything because he lacks the uh, intellectual wherewithal to make a coherent argument. All he can do is repeat his assertion. Peter, um, Peter, let me ask you this, because there's a lot of layers to this, I think. I think. Uh, talk to me a little bit about the, the, the boards of trustees that you deal with at the National Association of Scholars and the problem of boards of trustees generally. A lot of us know the history in the late 60s where they caved often to Black Panther threats, Weatherman threats, uh, takeovers. We're seeing some of that again today. Um, and I'm just wondering, you know, if there's any any control mechanism whatsoever or if we're supposed to expect from these boards of trustees that they're just not going to have any backbone. Can I keep you another segment and have you res- address that on the other side of the break if you have time? Sure. That would be great. I, I, I have to hit the commercial break, and I'll have Dr. Peter Wood, president of the National Association of Scholars, address that next uh, in our next segment, as well as, let me just give him the question, when you look at the, at the, at the terrain of American universities, what do you tell parents of 17- and 18-year-olds? that are intent on spending something like 80 or more thousand dollars a year. What do you tell them? You tell them to do it? We'll be right back with all those answers. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Dr. Peter Wood is the president of the National Association for Scholars, has a piece at American Greatness, a university capitulates to the woke mob, which was a fast-moving story this morning over the uh, creator of the 1619 Project, which UNC ultimately granted tenure to. She spurned them after a lot of controversy to join up at Howard University, which I think will be Howard's Lost, but Dr. Wood, the 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 last say on this, it looked like, was the board of trustees at UNC. If I read this story right, and when you think about reforms in our 
colleges, post-secondary education reforms, colleges and universities. Once upon a time, a lot of us conservatives used to say, well, we've got to work through the board of trustees. That's where you make changes. But I got to tell you, they've, they've, they've folded up uh, like, like, uh, like, uh, like pup tents in a lot of cases, haven't they, Peter? What, where else do we go? Or is there still hope? Well, you know, I've known trustees who have backbone, but they always seem to be a small minority on their boards. And the reason for that is that college presidents have long since learned to game the system. Mm. In principle, the college presidents report to the boards of trustees, but the college presidents have learned pretty easily to manipulate that system so that they get the trustees that they want on the board and then the trustees are supportive of whatever they want to do. Um, This is not something really new, even though it's gotten worse over the years. Uh, There's no law of nature that says a university has to be run by a board of trustees. That goes back in the United States to uh, the 18-teens when there was a U.S. Supreme Court decision that tried to prevent political interference with uh, board with colleges and universities by creating this uh, insulation between the political world and the uh, heads of the nonprofit world. Um, but ever since it really began with uh, the case involving uh, Dartmouth College at that point, uh, the college presidents have figured out how to work it. Uh, it's become a lot worse, of course, because as universities ballooned in their uh, social and political importance in the country, uh, we found our boards of trustees usually made up of uh, leaders of uh, industry, Mm -hmm. sometimes heads of churches and things like that, all of which were very susceptible to flattery and Mm -hmm. manipulation. You know, the old story is they get the tickets at the 50-yard line at the football game, and after that they'll do whatever the college president wants. Um, But it's worse than that because most of these college presidents don't really know very much about higher education. Um, Those who seek to inform themselves get uh, ushered out pretty quickly. So they learn the cliches that the college presidents teach them, and they go along with that. So it's always something of a a jaw-dropping surprise to me when you see the trustees of college or university doing the right thing. It suggests that some real leadership has emerged, but it's vanishingly rare, and clearly it's not backed by a whole lot of determination the moment they run into the idea that they may actually be held to account by their opponents for what they said. They shake and they quake and they decide, well, maybe it isn't worth standing up this way. I do think that there is a practical solution to this, and that consists of taking the power of appointing the trustees out of the hands of college presidents and doing something like making them stand for election to the general public. And uh, there are some states that do that. Colorado, for example, does that. And it's marginally better. They, you, know, you will find the faculty running hard to get their favorite people in. But if the colleges and universities behave in a really bad way, the public can do something about it and put in people who might be a little bit more responsive to the public good. 
Uh, that's that's the reform that I think is, that might work best if we could get any reform at all. Theoretically, with public colleges or universities, governors could exercise certain power. Reagan did that in his first year in, as governor of California in a big way, didn't he? Yes, he did, and that's how we got people like Ward Connerly on the board of the University of California. Okay. And I mean, it, it can work, um, but then again, you you get other. Uh, uh, governors in who decide to undo it right. and play games. So uh, it's a risky proposition unless you're in a state where you can rely on good governors, and there are not too many states like that. So, well, let me ask you are. the million-dollar question, then. I was teasing it before the break. Given the state of universities, and they've changed an awful lot in the last uh, 20 years or the last 10 years, um, what do you advise parents of 17 and 18 year olds who are thinking about going to school? What do you, what do you, I mean, they're, they're fixing to spend an awful lot of money to indoctrinate their children in uh, something they don't believe. How do you advise them? I mean, there's, there's, there's not enough Hillsdales to go around probably, right? Right. Well, I'm asked that question all the time sure. and I have an answer, which is very hard for people to hear and to act on. And, and that is, don't do it. Uh-huh. Uh, if, if your child has any capacity at all to develop marketable skills uh, via apprenticeships or going into the military, although that's now become a somewhat yeah. safety option, yeah. uh, but there are options that people can pursue. And if you reach an age where you're no longer quite susceptible to the intimidation tactics of woke faculty members, you couldn't go to college later on. Uh, it's that vulnerable age of 17, 18, 19, where these kids can be go, go into college with very solid foundations and have those eroded out from underneath yep. them in no time at all. Yeah. So I, I think delaying is a good tactic. Finding other options is a good tactic. Uh, there are not enough Hilsadales to go around. There are perhaps... Uh, a dozen or so colleges around the country where it's fairly safe to go. But unless you have a child who is absolutely brilliant in the STEM fields or knows exactly what he or she wants to do in college and has figured out a program where that's possible, it's not a good idea to head off to college in the spirit of, I'm going to explore and find out what's going on and maybe I'll discover myself in the liberal arts. You won't discover yourself. You will discover who some other bunch of people want you to be, and you'll come under immense social pressure to conform. Uh, that conformity is going to feel like a personal choice, but it isn't really a personal choice because you don't know what the alternatives are. So that um, immersion in a world where you are uh, insidiously indoctrinated without necessarily even realizing it is what college is about these days. And my advice to parents is uh, don't subject your children to that. They will graduate most likely with a whole lot of debt, not a whole lot of skills, and precious little knowledge about the things that count. A very hard decision for parents to make. They're made to feel guilty for denying their children what other people think they should have. There is a, a strong impetus in American life to think that if you don't send your kids to college, you're betraying them. But the truth is you're betraying them now that you do send them to college. I think that's beautifully stated, Dr. Wood. Thank you for your scholarship. Thank you for your work.
thanks for your time tonight. I really appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Thank you. My pleasure. Bye. Absolutely. I'm Seth Liebson, 602-508-0960. We will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson show. I um I can't not play this. This should have us all concerned. Uh Hugh Holman and Lewis Holman will discuss it with us in the third hour. But when you get it twice in one day, be afraid, be very afraid. I'm from the government and I'm here to help is what we're hearing from Jen Psaki and Joe Biden. Um, they are telling us that you're going to get a knock on your door, the knock at midnight. You know, you lived in Hugh. Is Hugh here? Can he see me? Hugh, come on in. You lived. You lived in. You you lived in Stalin's Soviet Union, and do you know what you feared more than anything else when Stalin was in charge of the Soviet Union? Exactly. That's right. The phone ring or the or the knock on the door. That's what you feared. And I guess they're going to do that again. Bill, uh, give me Jen Psaki and then give me the commander-in-chief uh, in order, please, in that order. Jen Psaki, of course, is the White House uh, press secretary. The president will outline five areas his team is focused on to get more Americans vaccinated. One, uh, targeted community-by-community door-to-door outreach to get remaining Americans vaccinated by ensuring they have the information they need on how both safe and accessible the vaccine is. Two, a renewed emphasis on getting the vaccines to more primary care doctors and physicians, something that we've seen. That's Jen Psaki, door-to-door outreach. Now, in case, uh, just in case you you, uh, you you're you're not you didn't get the message from the press secretary, the president doubled down. There was no correcting. There was no backtracking. There was no fixing this. This was a doubling down. Here's Joe Biden today after Jen Psaki. Special focus on five ways to make gains in those of you who are unvaccinated vaccinated. Because here's the deal: we are continuing to wind down the mass vaccination. Say it literally. I was hoping he'd say literally. Literally, door to door, Hugh Hallman. Door to door. You were once the mayor of Tempe. Did it ever dawn on you that you had the power? to issue to your police or law enforcement officers of any kind, health enforcement officers of any kind, to go door-to-door throughout the neighborhoods of Tempe to ask people if they had anything medically done to them or to tell them that they should get medical things done to them? Hello, I'm here from the government, and I'm just wanting to help you. Did you ever think you had that power? No. uh, In fact, the Supreme Court recently just noted that Exercising that power to collect people's ballots was dangerous yeah. enough because right. people were posing as authorities to do so in order to get ballots from people who were unaware. So now you're going to have government officials going door to door to make sure that people are properly uh, understand the information and will get vaccinated. That level of extortion scares the hell out of me. Yeah, it scares the hell out of me, too. It also shows- And I've been vaccinated. You have been. I'm not an anti-vax, but right. it's just... People get to make decisions and choices, and the president committed to a certain number of people would be vaccinated by July 4th. And when he found out lots of folks are not interested in doing so, either because they're fearful, 
They're concerned about the medical uh, outcome because there was a rush. Again, I got vaccinated. But there are also people who have made the rational decision, the cost-benefit analysis, that they're young enough, don't suffer from comorbidities, that the price of getting vaccinated could be a day or two of sickness or some worse outcomes, and they're not interested, Mm -hmm. that that the cure is worse than the disease. And now the government says that's not an acceptable answer. Well, um, one of the things that's, I suppose, most frightening about it is the idea that the government doesn't think we know about the vaccines, too. What kind of saps do they think we are? Well, the, uh, Are there people in America that don't know about this vaccine? So about two weeks ago, I drove out of my driveway and passed a park that had two new signs posted in it. You can get your vaccine here with phone numbers, both English and Spanish uh, in the signs. There was a mailer that dropped. I, in fact, made notice of it or reference to it uh, two weeks ago on the show that now we've got the city and other cities sending out postcards to households as if it's a political flyer saying you can get vaccinated There are not that many people who don't know that they can get vaccinated. There's plenty of opportunity to get vaccinated. Those who are not now getting vaccinated have made their decision. Maybe this is a Bernie Sanders plan to hire everyone who wants to work for the government, though. I mean, there's a lot of neighborhoods to walk in Canvas. Let me take this break. Let me come back with you on the other side. They'll do it with their Obama phones. (laughs) They'll do it with their Obama phones. I'm Seth Leibson. He's Hugh Hallman. We'll be right back. Hugh Holman is blue chip. He certainly is. He's a dear friend. He's an educator. He's an attorney. He is the former mayor of Tempe. We have him in every Tuesday with his son, Lewis. Is Lewis going to join us in a little bit? He is. Uh, he was in the Big Easy. He was in the Big Easy. To celebrate the 4th? To celebrate Southern the 4th with his bride, Southern style, for four days. And they had a lovely time, I understand. How fun. Uh, Hugh, right before the break, the point with Joe Biden and Jen Psaki telling us that the government's coming knocking on every door of the unvaccinated. It's two, two, two points. One is I, I, I would have a hard time believing there's any American of responsibility interacting in this world going out beyond some kind of desert solitaire lifestyle that doesn't know about vaccines and COVID at this point. That's issue one. But issue two, who needs yet to get vaccinated at this point that's vulnerable? Uh, we've done a pretty good job, haven't we, on getting the vulnerable population what they need here? Yeah. So here's what we've got. Now, vulnerable meaning elderly as opposed to or older. I would think. As opposed to uh, comorbidities, which can happen all across the demographic. But what we do know pretty easily, and data is available, but I haven't looked at it that closely, So at least one dose of the vaccine for 65 and over is 88% of the population, with 78% of that population fully vaccinated. So we knew very early on that 80% of all mortality, the deaths, were coming from people 65 and over. Still true today. Still true today. There's no change in that. It's exactly right. It's just slightly lower than 80%. So of the population most likely to succumb to the disease, 78% are fully vaccinated Uh, 10% uh, have yet to get their second dose. In 18 and over, uh, that is, it includes people 65 and over because they have not done the data very well. Okay, so 18 to 100. 18 to, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, death. Uh, Fully vaccinated is 58%, not quite 60% of the whole population. With at least one dose, 67% uh, of that population. But that's 10% away from herd immunity from the numbers we were told. That's correct. And we, we can argue about that in a moment. Let's okay. just make the easy okay. point. Uh, that all ages, that includes 12 and above, 
we're 47% fully vaccinated and 55% have one dose. What you get from those differentials in the numbers, somebody who got at least one dose is going to finish the program. They're not somebody who is fearful and they're not somebody who's indifferent. They've made that decision. Now, we also know that there's significant protection that comes from just having one dose. So you could imagine a group of people saying, I just, I'm just i going to get the one dose of the Moderna and be done, and that's good enough for me. Looking at the data, the people who get sick are the ones who got the second dose. So avoid the second dose. Don't get sick. Now you get the big part of the benefits, and you don't have the detriments. Those are the kinds of decisions that rational human beings make. Here's the challenge we're facing on the D side of things and the uh, the collectivists, the government collectivists. You're not late. We're early, by the way. Yeah. The government collectivists want to say that everybody has to get vaccinated. We're in charge here and we're going to scare you. So we have the Delta variant. We'll talk about that in the next. I hour. thought we were up to the Omega at this point. Uh, well, uh, something like that. Okay. Uh, Alpha <laughs> and then Omega. We will be getting to yes. Omega. Um, you know that, right? Zeta, maybe. Okay. But uh, the, the point is that be afraid, be very afraid is being used now to try to drive people who are not uh, likely the fearful ones who are going to be hesitant to get vaccinated, but the indifferent crowd. People have made the decision that plus minus, eh, I'm not going to get vaccinated because I'm too busy. I've got other things. It's a real cost benefit analysis. And I'm in a demographic where getting the disease doesn't cause much bad outcome. The likelihood of getting the disease is smaller and getting the vaccine has a higher probability of me spending two or three days sick. There's no question that that's a rational calculation and one that a lot of people are making. The Wall Street Journal, other places that have written about the side effects of the vaccine. I'm at the Mayo Clinic website right now. We all trust Mayo more or less. I think it's especially on a turkey sandwich. Yes. (laughs) That's good. Key takeaways. Vaccine side effects. One, pain at sight of shot. One would expect that. Two, fever. Three, fatigue. Four, headache. Five, muscle pain. Six, chills. Seven, joint pain. Eight, nausea and vomiting. Nine, swollen lymph nodes. Now, Compare that to the compare that to COVID. COVID, yeah. Exactly right. Compare that to COVID. All That's what I was supposed to get with COVID. Of, a loss of sense of smell and taste. Right. And some of us have such bad taste to begin with. It doesn't really matter. Okay. Happy to deprive you of it. Yeah. Yes. Um, the point being is that uh, people are making rational decisions. Is there some percentage of the population that is still completely ignorant? I think you've already said that. A a sentient being likely is not ignorant about the fact that a vaccine is available, and now there are. In Tempe, for example, posters in parks uh, with mailers to homes. And it made me really angry. Why? Because I, like you, believe most of us are rational enough to make these decisions, are informed enough to make these decisions. Very few people don't know this is available. And those resources are now being wasted to try to signal that this is an organization that's really, you know, uh, quite virtuous. It's nonsense. We're so, wasting resources now. Let me, let actually, me introduce Lewis Hallman. Lewis Hallman is the managing director of Insight Analytics. He's also the son of Hugh Hallman. Yes, sir. So that actually really makes me wonder, you know, because the the presumptive trade-off that the state is trying to get us to engage in when it's it's trying to nudge us towards higher rates of vaccination is that there are legitimately those for whom vaccinations are not terribly an auction. People uh, with immunosuppressive disorders, that kind of thing. And so, you know, it, it sort of makes me wonder the degree to which the state is able or, or ought to be able to take our tax dollars and then nudge us towards a behavior that we are not interested in engaging in, even if it is on, the, uh, even if it is ostensibly to help people. 
there is a net positive in that that column. And or not. I, I, won't I be, don't know. I won't be unfair and say that there's not a legitimate case to be made there. You know, it is true that that people uh, uh, with significant immunosuppressive disorders would benefit from a higher uh, a residual vaccine rate in the population. But to what degree are the rest of us obligated to sacrifice to ensure that that happens? And to what degree is the government empowered to force us to sacrifice and force our and dictate our decision making to ensure that that happens? That is the nub of the issue. We've got, quote, the moral hazard and free rider problem of people who are not getting vaccinated are riding on the herd immunity of those people who have either gotten the disease or gotten vaccinated. And now the government is saying that's not fair. Anybody who's unvaccinated is unpatriotic. That was the last time I think the president referred to patriotism was You've got to get vaccinated. And if you don't get vaccinated, you're subjecting people who otherwise are compromised from living the life they could live. And Lewis has asked the right question. To what degree is any individual obligated and can be forced by government fiat to subject themselves to a vaccination for the benefit of someone else? That's the ultimate question. We don't even have to make, put numbers on this to make this an interesting question. We could leave it categorical. If 50% of the population had an immunosuppressed disease that prevented them from being vaccinated, then that might be a whole different answer because the current number is probably what? 1%? 5%? How many people cannot actually be vaccinated? And so I have to ask, on whose behalf of all of this effort for? What is I, the trade-off? Isn't also, though, part of this, maybe we'll pick this up on the other side of the break, and we've got some callers, too, we want to get to, and others can join us, 602-508-0960. In fact, let's do that. Let's make the final point in this hour when we come back, and then we'll we'll hit calls next hour. If you're on hold, please don't go away, or call us right back. We will get to you. There's plenty of time, and Hugh and Lewis, and I can't wait to talk to you. I want to make another point about the COVID vaccines and the knock on your door um, when we come back. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Hugh Holman and Lewis Holman are my guests uh, on the day that we were told uh, by two high officials, the press secretary and the president, whom she serves, telling us the government's going to be knocking on your doors, uh, telling you, uh, uh, telling the unvaccinated about the vaccine and how to get vaccinated. One wonders what the script will be. One wonders what the one wonders what their charge will be. But there, there, there's another element to this that concerns me. We were just talking a little bit about it off uh, off um, uh, off air and and that's the issue of of legal government authority uh, there are gradations and law professors and legal intellects are very good at analogies and distinctions if you drive a car we've called that a privilege not a right and if you're getting engaged in that privilege there are certain things the car has to do and certain things you have to do from wearing a seatbelt to obeying speed limits. And we understand that. That makes sense. Forcing someone to buy medical insurance if they don't want to, that may be a new step. This is yet hyperspeed steps beyond, as you put it, the government telling you you have to put something in your body, right? I think that's correct. So the, the we lost the protection from economic extortion by the government a long time ago. And it really occurred in 1936. And that 
case law has been built on to the point that Obamacare could mandate that people had insurance to protect others in our society from the free rider problem, meaning that you, you don't have insurance, you're going to go to the, go to the hospital and run up costs for everybody. And so we're trying to solve that problem. Because why? Because we as a society determined that nobody, and this is where the Democrats succeeded in misstating everything, nobody could be denied medical care. Right. They turned it into nobody should be denied health insurance. Well, they used that to pretend that health insurance was a proxy for medical care, right. which was absolutely wrong. Right. Lots of people were getting medical care through clinics and through uh, charities and through hospital Hospitals emergency which rooms, were mandated to which treat. were it's, Somewhere around uh, 85, 86. So, in, uh, correct. Yeah. Uh, to be a charitable hospital, one of your mandates under the tax code right. was that you had to supply free services to those who couldn't pay. That turned into a cottage industry for folks who decided, well, then I'll go without health insurance. Right. That's a bad decision. That's the free rider problem. That's the free rider or moral hazard problem. People imposing their burdens on others. Uh, and so the government took a shot at fixing this badly, and it was Obamacare, and that everybody had to have a baseline level of insurance to save us all money. Well, we lost that in 1936. That's where we went to. But we have not yet gotten to the point where the government can say, Seth, come here. I'm going to stick this needle in your arm and subject you to uh, a vaccine. Scale of 1 to 10, how worried are you that we may get there? If not with COVID, something else. Four. Two, four. Maybe Let's five. pick it up with callers on the other side. Is that cool? Lewis and Hugh Hallman are my guests. Six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero is the number. Hugh puts it at forty percent that our government and legal um, legal firmament could mandate uh, vaccines or other injections in the name of our health. If not that, my gosh, certainly other things, uh, whether it be having to do with the First Amendment, the Second Amendment. Or the fifth. I think they're all at great discount right now. We'll talk more about it in just a few moments after the top of the hour news break. I'm Seth Leapson. They're the Hallmans, and we'll be right back.